Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Danielle Spiegelfeld, Executive Director of the Guarini Center on Environmental, Energy, and Land Use Law at New York University. We'll talk about a recent study that Danielle led with co-authors, examining how a carbon trading system might help New York City reduce emissions from its largest source, residential and commercial buildings. We'll talk about the interaction between electric sector decarbonization and buildings, implications for environmental justice communities, and even those iconic steam-spewing towers that stick out from Manhattan streets. Stay with us. Okay, Danielle Spiegelfeld uh, from the Guarini Center at NYU. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Danielle, we're going to talk today about a report that you have led with a variety of co-authors uh, about carbon trading in New York City's building sector. Uh, so it's going to be really fascinating. I can't wait to hear uh, your comments. But before we get started, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues, either as a kid or as an adult, or uh, just interested in whatever drew you into this line of work. Yeah, so... I think actually for me, it goes all the way back to, uh, to early grade school. Um, I remember this moment back in third grade when my class learned about the destruction of the rainforest in the Amazon. And there was a speaker from the Rainforest Alliance um, who came and told us about how many acres of the rainforest were being lost each year and the threat it posed to biodiversity. And it really shook me thinking that all the animals, you know, that I saw in storybooks or the zoos could be a thing of the past. Um, and as I went through through grade school and high school, my anxiety about the fate of the natural world only grew, especially as I learned about climate change. Eventually in college, I started to think about how I could channel this anxiety towards a more productive pathway um, than just being worried. Uh, and so I decided to apply to law school and go into environmental law. Um, and I have to say that I entered law school at a, at a fairly auspicious moment um, for an environmental lawyer. It was, I started in 2007, um, which was just after the landmark Supreme Court case, Massachusetts, the EPA had been decided. And in my first year in law school, Obama was elected, um, promising action on climate change and all the ducks really seemed to be in line for the federal government to finally start to get serious about climate change. Um, I thought we'd make progress, you know, either through litigation or through legislation. But then Waxman Markey, as you might remember, failed and the Clean Power Plan was stayed. And um, my enthusiasm, along with a number of other people's enthusiasm about the federal government's leadership, really started to wane until Trump was elected. Um, and I think it was at that point that I really started to think more seriously about what could be done at the local level. Um, and that's how I got into this line of work on cities and climate policy that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, let's get into that now and, and start with some basics. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, we're going to be talking about greenhouse gas emissions from buildings in New York. And one little data point that I dug out a couple of minutes ago was if you look across the entire United States, uh, when you include electricity that is consumed in buildings, um, 
residential and commercial buildings account for about 39% of total primary energy consumption in the U.S. So that has clear implications for greenhouse gas emissions. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the greenhouse gas emissions associated with energy consumption in buildings in New York City, uh, or perhaps at a national scale or whatever data you, you have at your fingertips? Yeah, so you're absolutely right about the percentage, you know, of primary energy use. Um, the buildings, that energy use accounts for around 30%, a third of, of total GHGs in the U.S. Um, and in densely populated urban areas, buildings actually typically contribute a much larger share of local GHGs. Uh, so in New York City, they contribute about 70% of total local emissions. Um, similar percentages in Chicago, D.C., and Boston, where the number hovers around 70% as well. Um, and so, I, you know, I think for the purposes of our conversation today, what this means is that when cities like New York want to lessen their impact on climate, they really need to tackle the building sector first and foremost. Um, there's just one other point that I just wanted to make, you know, because when one hears that buildings account for 70% of emissions in a city like New York, there might be a temptation to think, well, you know, our buildings might be especially bad here, especially inefficient. Um, but it's not actually the case, right? So it's not, the reason that emissions, buildings account for such a large percent of emissions in cities is not because our buildings are especially inefficient, but it's actually because transportation in these areas tends to be more efficient than in other areas. There are less vehicle miles traveled per capita, more mass transit. Um, and so if you're in a, in a scenario in which transportation accounts for a relatively smaller share of emissions, then, then buildings account for a relatively larger share. So it still brings us back to the point that if cities want to get serious about climate, they have to tackle buildings. But hopefully it's just a bit more context as to why. Yeah, that's great. And I have a sort of technical wonky question, actually. When we think about that 70% of greenhouse gas emissions, does that include the emissions associated with like manufacturing the steel and cement that gets used in producing those buildings? Or is that sort of accounted for under a different ledger? Yeah, that's a great question. That would be accounted for under a different ledger. Um, because in order to account for that, you'd have to be moving towards more of a, a consumption-based accounting system um, to get all the embedded emissions, which is typically not the way that, that cities, for better or worse, measure their, their GHGs. Right. Okay, great. That that makes sense. All right. So um, so as you said, you know, if cities want to get serious about uh, climate, then buildings are an obvious first place to start. So what is New York City doing uh, to try to reduce those emissions? And how does the recent study that you led seek to inform the implementation of the strategy that New York is, is going about? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, so maybe if I could just, I, I'll provide a little bit of a historical uh, perspective on this, sort of a walk through what's happened in New York over the past 15 years, because I think that helps to explain where we are today. Um, so basically, New York City has been steadily trying to rein in emissions from buildings since Michael Bloomberg's second term in office. And it was at this time that the city adopted um, a really important suite of legislation, a package of legislation known as the Greater Greener Buildings Code. The Greater Greener Buildings Code included a bunch of different regulations that were all fairly light touch, right? So they did not with some exception, they didn't impose really strict requirements on property owners to actually change 
um, the amount of energy they used. Instead, they were more they were more geared towards providing information about the quality of energy and the quantity of energy used in our buildings, um, and where there were opportunities to make cost-effective improvements. It was, it was in this same era that New York City adopted the benchmarking law, which subsequently was copied in cities throughout the country. And what this law did is that it required owners um, to annually report to the city how much energy they used per square foot compared to similar properties. They also adopted a law as part of this package uh, that required owners to periodically conduct energy audits that were geared towards identifying opportunities for low-cost retrofits. And there were some other things passed in this laws. I mean, there was a requirement to, um, to install more efficient light bulbs over time. But by and large, I think what's important is that the laws were geared towards providing information to building owners that they hope would lead them voluntarily to improve their property's efficiency. It was a very bottom-up approach. Um, and and this, this approach did have some success, right? Like it's credited with leading to some improvements in efficiency. Um, but I think as time went on, and especially as it became evident that the federal government wasn't really gonna tackle emissions upstream through the energy sector, there started to be a movement growing for the city to take stricter, more top-down action. Um, and so the first step of this process was to require that building owners actually post their benchmarking scores on site so that they would be broadly visible to the public. And the idea here was that if you could build market awareness about properties' relative efficiency, that information could be more easily priced into decisions about where to buy or rent and hopefully provide a stronger incentive. Um, to landlords to improve their properties. Then, then in 2009, the real big change, 2019, sorry, the real big change came about. So that's the year that the city passed the Climate Mobilization Act. Um, and the centerpiece of the Climate Mobilization Act was Local N97. So Local N97 is really a big departure from what came before in that it entirely jettisons this informational approach. Instead, it established mandatory caps on the total amount of GHG emissions that buildings could release per square foot. Um, with some exception, these caps apply to all buildings with more than 25,000 square feet, so residential, commercial, industrial. And they also incorporate emissions from both fossil fuels that are burned on site as well as fossil fuels that are attributed to the production of electricity used uh, in the building. And so it's a pretty, it's a pretty big change. Um, it's certainly more top-down, certainly more aggressive. And that obviously gave rise to some concerns from, from industry folks in particular about, you know, what would the cost of this law be? Um, and so that's where we step in, both sort of analyzing uh, in more detail than had been done before, what are the predicted costs of the law and on who will they be imposed? Um, and then could carbon trading be utilized as a mechanism for, for helping to reduce those costs or perhaps redistribute those costs in a more equitable fashion? Yeah, that's great. And can you tell us maybe just a little bit more about the study itself um, and and its focus on carbon trading, as well as maybe is it worth mentioning the partners that you worked with um, yeah, on the analysis? Course. Yeah, so when Local Law 97 was being drafted, 
Um, there were a number of actors already who were raising the idea of, of adding a carbon trading to the program, um, a carbon trading program to the law, I should say. And, and the idea here would be to allow building owners uh, to trade credits of some sort um, for their total emissions so that they could achieve a lower average cost of compliance. Um, but there was certainly not consensus that this was the right way to go. Um, and there was also not consensus about how such a program might be structured. And so what ultimately happened is that the city council wrote a provision into Local N97 mandating um, that a carbon trading study be conducted, right? Mandating that the city commission a study into whether uh, a trading program should be added to the law or, or what the impacts of adding a trading program to the law would be. Um, and so NYU was selected uh, to lead that study, but we worked with a number of really critical partners throughout the process, um, HRNA advisors, here in New York helped us a lot with providing insight into the real estate sector and data on, on the real estate sector and energy use. The Brattle Group uh, led the economic modeling. We also worked with uh, Stephen Winter Associates, which is an engineering firm that really has a lot of very particular expertise um, on, on energy in the energy sector. Um, as it relates to buildings in New York City. Um, so it was really a large team effort to produce the study. Yeah, that's great. And the study itself, which we, of course, will have a link to in the show notes, it's called Carbon Trading for New York City's Building Sector. So let's dive into um, you know, some of the really important uh, points that you draw out in your analysis. So the first that I think is worth talking about is um, you know, the fact that the the state as a whole, New York State, is looking to reduce emissions in the power sector to zero by 2040. And of course, buildings use lots of electricity. So um, what would the decarbonization of the power sector mean for buildings when they're thinking about meeting those city-specific environmental goals? Yeah, that's a, a great question and really important. Um, so the short answer is that grid decarbonization is going to make it a lot easier. Uh, for buildings to meet their targets. Um, in fact, we estimated that if the grid decarbonizes on pace with the state goals, uh, and those goals are reflected in the city regulations that measure buildings' emissions, a slim majority of the square footage that Local N97 covers won't need to make any changes until 2035 in order to meet their, their obligations under the local law. Um, but of course, the, the situation will look quite different if the grid doesn't decarbonize on pace. And incidentally, not decarbonizing the grid is probably closer in line to the scenario that most New York City lawmakers had in mind um, when they passed Local N97 because the city law was passed first. So when Local N97 was drafted, lawmakers certainly could not with any confidence have assumed that the state was going to decarbonize the grid on the ambitious timeline that they later established. Um, the other thing that's really important to note is that the law doesn't affect all buildings equally, even if the grid decarbonizes. There will be some buildings that are gonna have a much harder time meeting their targets than others. Um, and there are a number of reasons for why this would be the case. Uh, factors including you know, the, the type of tenants that they have in a property, the mix of energy that the building uses, et cetera and so forth. Um, and so that's really where the utility of trading could potentially come in place. 
because carbon trading provides a mechanism through which building owners with high compliance costs could essentially pay buildings with low compliance costs to reduce emissions for them. Um, and the idea is that if the program is well designed, you get the same amount of emissions um, reduced, but at a lower cost. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, right. Trading credits doesn't make a lot of sense when the credits are worth zero or something exactly. close to zero. Um, I, so I have another kind of wonky question, and this might yeah. be a better question for an electricity system modeler than than a legal expert. But um, when the city is accounting for electricity-related emissions that are coming from the grid, do you know what type of accounting system it would use? Because Right there's the eastern interconnection is one sort of mega grid, and then you have New York State, which is not an isolated grid, but it has its own system operator. Uh, and so electricity, right, electrons could be flowing from Florida up to New York City uh, in some at least theoretical capacity. Um, so do you know how the city plans to account for emissions coming from outside of the state? Mm, that's a really great question, um, and. You know, for the details, I would certainly have to refer you to the team at Brattle and other people at NYU who really focused on this question in more detail. Um, but one thing that I would note is that the the coefficient, the carbon coefficient for electricity from the grid um, is, is quite geographically limited so that it's not even going to... Um, it should not. It's being drawn up now. The, the methodology hasn't been set. But I, I don't believe that they envision setting it based on a statewide average, but instead based off of um, the precise or more precise carbon intensity of electricity in zone J, which is the zone of the New York State electricity system that, um, that feeds New York City and has historically had quite a different carbon profile uh, than the electricity um, upstate. So I guess my, my short and very unscientific answer for you is that it, it should be a geographically, I have every reason to believe that it will be quite a geographically uh, limited um, approximation of the, of the carbon intensity of electricity. Okay, great. That's really helpful. And um, yeah, that would be a fascinating topic to explore in its own right. And um, just the whole topic of estimating marginal emissions factors from different grids as a whole, you know, discipline really unto itself. Um, so uh, another really interesting result that you talk about in the report is the differential effect that residential and commercial buildings might experience under sort of different combinations of policies. Um, can you talk about some of those differences? Yeah, so this was one of the most important findings of our initial modeling work. And I think it probably came as a surprise to some of the people that were involved in drafting Local Law 97. Um, so, you know, as you alluded to earlier in the conversation, there are two main types of energy use in buildings. First, we have electricity that is used for light bulbs and elevators, air conditionings, basically everything we plug into the walls, right? From computers to televisions to telephones, et cetera. Um, the other type of energy use we have in buildings is energy that's used by burning fossil fuels on site. And this energy is used for heating and for cooking and for making hot water. In commercial office buildings, electricity accounts for the vast majority of total energy use because there's just not a whole lot of cooking or showering going on. Um, 
And there's also a lot of stuff plugged in, right, in these buildings per square foot. So many of us work in open floor plan offices, right, where you just have computers stacked side by side, lots of printers, et cetera. Your typical house doesn't have such an intensive plug load. Um, and so what this means is that as the grid decarbonizes, commercial buildings are going to see their emissions fall much more dramatically than residential buildings will. And as time goes on, if we assume that the state is going to be successful in decarbonizing the grid, this means that local on 97 becomes pretty easy for most commercial buildings to comply with, but not so easy for many residential buildings. Um, and so there's really this, this differential effect of the law on buildings depending on the type of occupancy. That's really interesting. I'm wondering also when we think about you know, heat in particular that's provided to buildings in New York City. I'm thinking about like the iconic uh, images of, you know, the orange and white towers coming out of the street with the steam coming out of the top. And and I think those are vents for the sort of district heating system that transmits um, hot steam around the city to heat homes. Can you talk about what implications this policy might have for the continued use of that steam heat system, which today I assume is powered by natural gas? Mm, that's a great question. Yeah, so while those images are iconic, steam heating accounts for quite a small percentage um, of, of the total heat load, if you could use that, that word in New York City, right? So most buildings have their own boiler systems um, that provide heat. Uh, but you're right that, you know, as time goes on, local N97 will, will make it relatively less cost effective than it is today to continue to use steam heating. Um, and certainly the goal of the law is to try to provide a nudge or a price signal for people to transition towards electric heating. Now, I think we found that the the caps are probably not stringent enough in many cases to really um, incentivize electrification. Um, but I certainly, I, I would certainly say that you know that is a policy goal of New York City to transition towards electric heating, and the hope um, was that local N ninety seven would help push buildings in that direction. Great, that's really interesting to know that 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 district heat. Uh, network is not a uh, you know a dominant source. I I'd always sort of assumed it was because you just see those things yeah. all over the place and you yeah, see yeah, the yeah. steam everywhere. But um, oh, that's really interesting. Play prominently in movies. <laughs> Absolutely, and I feel like Saturday Night Live, right? The intro always has yeah. some pictures of the the smoke coming out, or the steam. So uh, Danielle, just one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is a question about environmental justice issues. Mm. There are some, you know, really interesting findings in the report uh, that are relevant to environmental justice communities that have historically borne a disproportionate burden of pollution in New York City. Um, you know, carbon trading, uh, cap and trade programs have been controversial among environmental justice communities for for quite a while, uh, especially in places like California, where such policies have been in place for a while. So can you talk about uh, some of the findings that you drew out in this report uh, with regard to environmental justice communities? Yeah, that's a really great and important question. Um, so I think before we can get into some of the findings that we that we made about how a trading program could potentially impact environmental justice communities, 
it's important to sort of level set um, and identify, you know, which are the communities that might be considered environmental justice communities in, in New York City and where are they located. Um, and at the time that we were conducting our modeling, um, the city had a parallel process underway to try to formally define the geographies that would be categorized as environmental justice communities. Um, but we needed to come up with a, you know, working definition for, for our modeling purposes so we could proceed. Um, and so we came up with, a, with two criteria that we would use to sort neighborhoods, one social, one um, health. The social criteria looked at high school graduation rates and the health criteria looked at the, uh, the rate of asthma-related hospitalizations. Um, and the map that we developed, which you know probably looks similar to what many people might have intuited, essentially covered the Bronx, northern Manhattan, portions of Staten Island, and then large swaths of, of um, Brooklyn and Queens. And what's really important to note about um, these geographies for our purposes is that there are not a lot of commercial office buildings in these areas. Um, Instead, the commercial office buildings are largely concentrated in downtown and midtown Manhattan, right? And so what that means is that as, you know, as the grid decarbonizes, it becomes increasingly uh, expensive for buildings that are in environmental justice communities um, to meet their, their obligations compared to the buildings that are not environmental justice communities, right? And so the, the, the nature of the building or the type of occupancy being residential concentrated in EJCs and then commercial office buildings concentrated uh, outside of EJCs is going to affect um, the, the distribution of costs that the law imposes when you combine it with grid decarbonization. Um, and I think, you know, many people thought that, that this uh, allocation of costs was not, was not optimal. Um, and so one of the, the goals for the carbon trading study was actually to see if we could design a program that would help to redistribute the cost burden um, away from residential and therefore EJCs uh, towards the commercial sector. Um, and non-EJCs. And I think actually that we came up with a couple of program designs that could effectively lead to these outcomes um, while also lowering total average cost throughout the city. Um, and so while, if, you know, of course there is longstanding opposition or controversy to this idea of carbon trading from, from certain corners, I think our studies showed that, you know, these programs could be designed in a way that would actually affirmatively advance um, some of the objectives of environmental justice advocates. That's really interesting. And, and I guess, you know, we'll refer folks to the report to kind of explore those scenarios in depth because there, there's so much richness in the report that, that I'd really encourage people to check out. Well, um, Danielle Spiegelfeld from NYU, thanks uh, so much again for coming on the show. This is such interesting work, and it's going to be fascinating to watch how the implementation of this policy plays out over the next 10 or 20 years, um, or probably more more quickly than that, actually, um, over the next few years, at least. So um, 
Let's move now to the last uh, question that we ask all of our guests, which is um, what you have read or watched or heard recently uh, can be related to the environment, even if it's just kind of tangential that you think is interesting and you'd recommend to our listeners. And I'm going to start with a recommendation of a book that I just finished. And it's one of my favorite energy books I've read in a really long time. Um, It's called Yellowbird, uh, Oil, Murder, and a Woman's Search for Justice in Indian Country. Uh, It's about a woman who uh, goes on a search to basically solve an unsolved murder that happened on the Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota during the um, sort of early days of the Bakken oil boom. Um, And it's by Sierra Crane Murdoch. It's just a wonderful portrait of of a fascinating and complex woman, as well as uh, sort of a, a look at what was happening in the region, uh, on the reservation, uh, during the oil boom, which was really a kind of wild time uh, in North Dakota. So I'd really recommend that. But how about you, Danielle? What's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading <laughs> stack? Great. Well, so actually, I was thinking about this, because I, I know you do this top of the stack at the end. And I have to recommend something that a student of mine recommended recently to me. Some of your listeners might be familiar with the podcast 99% Invisible. So they have one called Pipe Dreams, um, which is about how changes in toilet technology uh, away from the flush toilet could have significant environmental benefits, both for climate change and also for water scarcity issues. Um, And I just thought it was a really fascinating look at, at this technological innovation or the potential for this innovation because what the program makes clear is that in many cases the technologies that we need or that we could really benefit from are already available. Um, They're just not that widespread and so I thought it was an interesting take on how sometimes the technology that we all take for granted as being set in stone, you know, like flush toilets, um, actually could be changed, right? And and, uh, I liked the way it, it raised questions about sort of broader broader implications for environmental policy and, and, and what we might be able to change if we just thought a bit more creatively. Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, I wonder, I mean, you probably don't spend much time in men's restrooms, um, <laughs> but but I, I go in there sometimes and there there are these, occasionally you see these no flush urinals. Mm. Um, do you Are those the types of technologies that they're talking about on the show? Uh, I think that's among the technologies that would be uh, preferred to what's in place today. Really interesting. All right. Well, next time you go in a restroom and you've got something new to think about. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> okay. Well, Danielle Spiegelfeld from uh, the Guarini Center at NYU. Once again, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this fascinating work. Great. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.